has done uh, quite a bit of research on um, financial sector issues, financial regulation, uh, the governance of the euro area and the banking union, um, but in parallel always uh, took a deep interest in the underlying growth issues, uh, things like um, productivity growth, uh, firm entry, and, and uh, the lack of an investment recovery really in Europe. Um, so, uh, jointly with a number of colleagues, we've been looking at the issue of uh, debt deleveraging and debt restructuring, um, really looking from both the side of financial institutions and the overhang of non-performing loans, but also matching this with an interest in um, a uh, balance sheet uh, restructuring and a revival of corporate and household finances. Um, so, yeah, the music has now been switched off, uh, so uh, we can focus on our good panel here. Um, and uh, I think this is the first event we're doing in this uh, research uh, program uh, and uh, really an attempt to look at the, the legal issues underpinning uh, debt restructuring. And um, really this year is, is a really um, key juncture for this agenda in that uh, you have, uh, on the one hand, uh, much more momentum on the side of bank supervision through things like uh, the, the asset quality recognition, um, but also the new guidelines by the ECB on, on banks' management of NPLs. And then in parallel, you have um, reforms in uh, debt restructuring frameworks in a number of member states, um, and now the uh, directive uh, proposal by uh, the uh, Commission, which uh, is the key topic today. Um, so um, just to... Um, remind you, if a reminder is needed, that um, this is a key uh, economic issue. Um, uh, we have here, just very quickly, a chart with uh, the um, estimates by the Commission of uh, the needs for debt reductions or debt deleveraging in both the household and the corporate side, so a number of countries to the uh, upper uh, right-hand corner there. Um, but really, uh, we believe here in Bruegel this is an issue that cuts across all member states in that the banking linkages um, are so pervasive, not just across the euro zone, but also within the capital markets union, um, that they, really this is a European uh, agenda and issue. Um, you're familiar with the stocks of uh, NPLs and the very limited uh, progress that's been made in reducing these. Um, uh, but today, really, we want to look at the underlying process for working this out. And working this out does not happen through the sale of an NPL by a bank. It does not happen through a uh, reclassification of, of uh, delinquent assets. But it happens uh, through working uh, through legal and, and partially private processes um, around restructuring and insolvency frameworks. And uh, just to remind you how varying and how imperfect these processes are within the EU, um, we gave you here two uh, charts from the World Bank uh, indicators on um, recovery of um, uh, debt from a delinquent debtor and the cost in insolvency. Um, and uh, you know, there are numerous cases of how, how uh, protracted that is. Yeah? 
So uh, with that as a hopefully brief introduction, um, uh, let me just uh, introduce the panel. So on my furthest uh, left here, we have Philip Hertz, who is the head of uh, restructuring, uh, global restructuring in Clifford Chance, based in London. Um, Sarah Patterson, um, also previously with a legal uh, practitioner's career, is now um, at uh, the London School of Economics. Um, Andrea Stein is um, head of unit at the um, DG Justice in the EU Commission um, and oversaw the release of this uh, draft directive um, and uh, which will now very much shape the uh, legislative uh, dialogue between the different institutions. Um, and Catherine Bridge here on my furthest right uh, is a senior counsel in the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and has been very deeply involved in capacity building and technical assistance to countries in Central Europe, so very much the new member states in the area of um, uh, restructuring and insolvency. Yeah? So thank you to all four of you um, uh, for traveling here today, and uh, I look forward to discussion. So the way we'll do this, uh, Sarah will kick off um, with an overview of uh, the European restructuring market, and then we have uh, Philip with a practitioner's perspective on all that. Um, now, Philip will need to leave uh, just after two, so uh, we'll break briefly then and maybe take some questions and then go into the discussion of the uh, EU proposal in more detail and uh, capacity issues that Catherine will address. Yeah, Sarah. Thank you. Um, thank you very much to Bruegel for um, inviting me. So I think... My role is really scene-setting and introductory, but uh, like all good academics, I'm going to slightly abuse that. Um, so the structure of my comment is going to be, first of all, to set the scene, um, and where I really see the promise of the proposal in the context of the current restructuring market across Europe. Um, but I'm then, perhaps slightly provocatively, going to raise some areas that we might want to debate in the proposal itself. And I'm going to try and wrap up with um, what I think the proposal might not do. So where the areas are for the conversation to go next. Um, so just sort of setting the proposal itself in context and why restructuring has become such a hot topic um, in Europe amongst practitioners, amongst scholars, really pretty recently um, in the last sort of 10 years or so. Um, so as I'm sure everyone in the room knows, traditionally banks have been extremely reluctant to write off debt, um, not least because writing off debt implicates significant capital adequacy considerations for banks. So there's a great deal of academic work, certainly in a UK context from the 1990s, that shows that even in the era of consensual restructuring in the London market, um, which was pretty well known um, under the auspices originally of the Bank of England, using the sort of principles that were set out in the London approach, that actually debt write-off or debt restructuring was comparatively rare. What was much more common um, were covenant amendments and extensions of maturity. Um, and we all know the problem that creates because it doesn't deleverage the balance sheet and so it leaves the business still with a significant debt overhang going forward um, and either a good deal of luck or judgment is needed to turn things around. But, but banks historically pretty reluctant to write off debt. Um, and I think what really changes this significantly in the European market is the arrival from the US of the distressed debt traders. Um, and the distressed debt traders are not constrained 
by concerns of capital adequacy. And they have developed different strategies for dealing with a distressed asset. Uh, the loan-to-own strategy, which is based on the entire idea that you will swap the debt for equity and wait until you see either an improvement in market conditions or an improvement in the asset itself because it's now got a lighter balance sheet and so it's better able to compete. Um, and that offered a really nice route for banks because the price that banks would get um, on the sale to the distressed, distressed debt trader is certain. So the bank no longer takes the risk of the restructuring process, and restructuring is not for the faint-hearted. Um, it's, a, it's a perilous business, so the price is certain. You can take that price to credit. Credit either approves it or they don't, and then the deal is done. And that trade can then be executed relatively quickly, albeit that I think there are some significant problems with the secondary debt trading market in, the, in Europe, which could be improved just as an infrastructure matter and which would make that even better. And we know that restructuring in insolvency law is going to play a real part in the willingness of those traders to get involved because most of their strategies, even if their strategy is to wait for the debt price to increase a little bit during the course of the case, most of those strategies are premised in some way or another on the idea that the market will think that the business is going to restructure. So even if you're trading in on a relatively short-term perspective, that you hope to sell out relatively quickly. The reason you expect to see the price of the debt go up is because the prospect of the restructuring is looking more likely. Um, so the, the ability for those traders to see that restructuring law in place is going to be very significant for their willingness to get involved. It's also, of course, going to play a key part in the price that they're willing to pay. And the distressed debt market as a sort of lubricant, if you like, in this entire process only works if there's price alignment between the buyer and the seller. If the spread between the price the distressed debt trader is willing to pay and the this size of loss that the bank feels it can absorb is too significant, then the trade won't happen. So the more certain restructuring law is and the more predictable the outcome, the better, we hope, the price that the distressed debt trader is willing to pay, the better the hope of price alignment, and therefore the better hope that the trade can happen. Um, so we know that lots of other things are implicated in the investment decision besides law on the books, and I'll talk about some of those in a moment, but it's clearly relevant. Um, and so in modern finance markets, certainly in any large economy, there is a real function for restructuring law in helping the process of recovery. Um, and that's only going to increase because, of course, as part of the wider capital markets union, um, one of the things that is a key concern for legislators, for regulators, for the commission, is going to be moving Europe away from a complete reliance on banks. And therefore, we're going to see investment co funds coming in in increasing numbers as the original lenders. Those investment funds themselves are not constrained by capital adequacy concerns. They also don't have a massive workout infrastructure in the way that a bank does. So they are better able to deal with a financial restructuring than with a very long workout process. They don't have a big back office of people to look at a complicated integrated restructuring plan over three or four years. Actually, a rapid financial restructuring is, is better for those funds. 
So as they come in in increasing numbers as the original lenders in the market for perfectly healthy companies, we would also expect to see those lenders very focused on restructuring when the business hits distress. And in an ideal way, because every bankruptcy practitioner and scholar knows that the sooner you take action, the better chance of turning things around, the hope is that many of those funds will be particularly dynamic in uh, the moment at which they decide to restructure. Um, so both in terms of the current market, in terms of, and of course some banks will gradually embrace the idea of financial restructuring, but I still think that it is a technique that works better for some of these other types of lenders, and we can perhaps talk about that. But as we see them both coming in in the secondary market closer to distress, but also investing in the market for healthy companies, um, then we can see that that will only really operate well in a jurisdiction that has a financial restructuring regime. So key to have that in the toolbox. And most member states have recognized that, but all law develops in what academics call a path-dependent way. The way you go forward is informed by the cultural and social traditions which dictated where you started from. Um, and corporate insolvency more than any other area. It is so integrated with how a society thinks about itself, how it thinks about failure, how it thinks about criminal law, that member states um, have found it difficult, I think, or at least the market perception is that they have found it difficult to overcome some of those previous concerns and perhaps to think about things in a new way. And that has resulted in some red lines within jurisdictions, which means that even though member states have tried in their own national processes to develop a modern toolbox, there are still seen to be some problems. So a good example of that is the requirement in many member states for an insolvency process. Um, so we might look, for example, at the ESUG in Germany. Um, and then the problem with that in terms of what insolvency may do in a restructuring scenario both in terms of value, but also in terms of its institutional requirements. So there is a very strong transaction avoidance regime in Germany, and the concern that the professional advisor's fees for the restructuring may be set aside in the bankruptcy is going to be a pretty significant deterrent. Um, if we look at jurisdictions where insolvency is handled at local courts or diverse courts, where perhaps judiciary are seen as not having built up experience over a number of cases, then there's going to be a concern about predictability. So a worry that although member states have made great progress, they have not gone as far or as quickly as perhaps the market thinks they need to go to have a, a restructuring regime. Uh, and so... The European proposal, I think, steps in as a wonderful piece of sort of pragmatic lawmaking that tries to mediate between those red lines, but also push things on a little bit more. Um, and so I, I said I was going to be a little bit provocative, and I'm going to use my last five minutes for that. Um, for me, this really raises two questions. The first is the proposal itself. You know, to what extent do we want to debate the way that the proposal mediates those red lines? And there's a great deal I could say about that, but I want to pick out two particular features. The first is that the proposal adopts an idea, which we see in some member states, 
of having a preliminary moratorium as almost an entirely standalone process, a gateway to whatever else you might do. So in theory, at least, you can use the preliminary moratorium <coughs> to buy yourself time in order to decide and to debate with your creditors what you're going to do. So it's an almost classic chapter 11 idea of gaining a breathing space for yourself. And I think there are good reasons for wanting a moratorium in a financial restructuring regime for the next cycle. Um, specifically, we've seen a rise of covenant-like lending across Europe, which may mean that the borrower comes to the table much later in the conversation than they have done in this crisis, which may mean that things become much more contentious and more hostile faster. So I'm Although actually in England, at least, we've managed pretty well without a moratorium in our principal restructuring regime, I can see why you might want get one going forward. But I think there are controversies around this idea of the moratorium as a standalone process. Um, and I think the concern there, and this is a very, very high level view, I think the concern there may be that investors' nervousness about how that moratorium may be used may vary according to their own overall perception of the legal environment within a jurisdiction. So in jurisdictions where they perceive the courts and the market to be broadly pro-creditor, they will be reasonably relaxed about the promise and perils of the moratorium. But in other environments where they are more nervous about the overall institutional environment, that actually they will see the moratorium as more of a threat keeping them at bay whilst the asset is run down by companies perhaps who have no long-term future of really doing a financial restructuring. And so actually the moratorium may accentuate the way in which investors see differences between jurisdictions rather than drawing them together. Um, the second area that I would sort of put in my bucket of big issues is what I found a rather surprising decision in the proposal to apparently adopt, and, and it's not entirely clear, but it appears that the proposal is more moving towards a US approach to valuation in cramdown rather than a traditional European approach. And this is often described as the difference between a liquidation value and a going concern value. I think that's actually a bit misleading um, most of the time, I think most jurisdictions would accept that going concern value is the right measure. The real debate for me is whether you look at current market price, what would the business be worth today in current market conditions, or whether you look in a more US way towards professional valuation <laughs> opinions. The proposal appears to be moving towards the second, although the recommendation had to be firmly in the first. And I have a number of reservations about that, including the finance literature that suggests that that is somehow necessary for the pricing of credit. Far too detailed for an introductory comment, but something I'd like to get on the table perhaps for discussion. And then finally, in my last minute, um, where do I think the limits in the proposal are? So I think the proposal, very, very good news. Some areas I would specifically like to debate, but I think it has a real function. Um, but I see its role really in large corporate debt restructuring. I am not convinced that it is the solution for SMEs. And actually, the need to think about those two situations 
separately is becoming widely acknowledged. So when the American Bankruptcy Institute reviewed Chapter 11, they accepted that there are a number of things that make SMEs different and mean that a Chapter 11 restructuring does not currently work very well for SMEs. And actually, they came out with a very radical proposition, which doesn't seem to have got much traction, in which there would be a sort of set plan for SMEs. And so long as your plan conformed to those plans, it would go through. Um, other jurisdictions, Kosovo has just done something quite radical using some US bankruptcy scholars to help them, um, in which there are very low th voting thresholds. Um, in England, we very controversially typically do a prepackaged sale to the connected party. And in some jurisdictions like India, um, there's a very regulator-led approach which bears some resemblance to the old London approach and the insole principles. So the regulator leads the charge in imposing effectively a new loan agreement, a new arrangement on the banks, and in return for that offers regulatory forbearance. Now, why do I say it's different in my last half a minute? Um, I think there are lots of things that make SMEs different. The first is that when we look at the restructuring proposal, it works best for financial liabilities. But often in an SME situation, the financial liabilities will not absorb the loss. You will need trade credit as well. And once you bring trade credit into the conversation, the dynamics change dramatically. Um, the investment opportunity is completely different. In many of these cases, a debt for equity swap is not going to be interesting. And more than that, in many SME situations, you have to leave the equity with the incumbent management, or the plan to run the business on is simply not interesting for them. And often without incumbent management, there's nothing else to run on. There'll be a very low tolerance for liability risk right around the picture in an SME restructuring because nobody's earning very much for doing it. So very quickly, any risk outweighs the reward. Um, and the costs are so finely balanced. There's often so little money to actually do anything. So speed and low cost, absolutely, of the essence. So my parting shot, a great deal, I think, that's, that's very good in the proposal, a few areas of specific concern, and a question mark for me over how well adapted it is to the SME situation. And I would like to see the conversation move on to distinguishing between the large cases and the smaller cases. OK, thank you, Sarah. Very uh, relevant given that a good chunk of the NPLs are in SMEs, in particular in these crisis countries. So we'll come back to that here. So, Philip, uh, a big boost to a uh, law firm like Clifford Chance. Uh, are you staffing up now on the basis of this directive? Absolutely. Or, I'm, yeah? I'm, I'm, I'm going to retire now. I'm, gonna, I'm just doing, the, I'm doing speaking uh, uh, engagements only now. We'd love to have you back um, again. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't spoken yet. You may not want me back. Um, first of all, thank you very much again uh, to, for Briegel to inviting me. I, I'm going to, I mean, as Alex said, look at this from a... Um, a practical, more of a practical perspective, although, you know, Sarah also is a, a practicing partner of the Slaughter May, so she's pretty much been in the, uh, in the trenches with us, uh, uh, as well as being uh, a professor at LSE, so uh, have two jobs, uh, amazing. Um, and I'm, I'm going to look at um, three areas, really, that are really key. Um, I'm going to look at the, the ability to cram down, uh, because that, that is something which we've had for a long time under English law with schemes, and it's now being introduced, uh, rolled out across um, um, the continent, and especially with this directive. 
I'm going to look at the, about, I'm going to look at the, uh, the capacity within banks and within the local restructuring professions to actually implement um, um, some, of the, some of the suggestions in the, in the directive. And, and lastly, I'm going to look at schemes and uh, what Brexit means for schemes, especially uh, given uh, Mrs May's speech last night. Um, I, I, was, I wasn't sure whether I'd be allowed on Eurostar this morning, but uh, <laughs> luckily I was allowed. So looking at, looking at cram down, essentially um, cram down is such a key element um, nowadays of restructuring um, in uh, practice. Um, I, there are two types of cram down, um, what I call horizontal cram down and vertical cram down. I'm not sure if anyone else uses those expressions. But what I mean by horizontal cram down is a cram down within a tranche of debt. So, you know, where you need 100% consent, I don't know, for an extension of a tenure or reduction um, in, uh, um, in, in amount, and you don't have all everyone's consent. You, uh, look, looking at tools to cram down, basically impose a solution on that tranche of debt. And that's something that English schemes can do. What English schemes can't do, um, which is often a bit of a misconception, um, is vertical cram down. Actually force um, um, junior sets of creditors, shareholders, people who are out the money into a solution when they don't want to go into a solution. For that, the English solution is a prepack, um, um, some sort of prepack enforcement. The, now, where, now where the directive is, um, is, 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 is key and, um, and is interesting is that what it's now introducing is not only cram down, horizontal cram down like a scheme, but it's also introducing what they call cross cram down. And cross cram down you know, is, uh, is, is important because uh, it really replicates, as Sarah said, uh, you know, chapter 11, it allows... Um, it allows the transfer where valuable parts of the business, it, does, it stops shareholders getting, getting in the way, especially when shareholders um, you know, have no value, in the, uh, really, no skin in the game, no economic interest. But what is absolutely key, and I really, and I really agree here with, with Sarah, is that the, that, the, um, that, the, that the classes that are to be crammed down are protected by proper valuation techniques. Um, and in this regard, Article 13 of the directive does provide that where there are challenges to the restructuring plan, um, the valuation is either on a liquidation basis, if you can show that you would be worse off, that creditors are worse off than they would be in a liquidation, or on an enterprise basis. But looking at that enterprise basis, what it, what it means is that where you move to an enterprise basis, a Chapter 11 type um, model, what it means is that where you are a junior creditor, you probably have much more scope to be difficult and to hold up um, restructuring. So actually, that may actually work against the aims of what the, what the directive is actually aiming for. Whereas where, we, where, where, where traditionally we've had, at least in the UK, looked at enforcement um, uh, valuations or liquidation valuations, then you've really been looking at, well, you know, um, are these people who are really out of the money, should they have any influence? Also wanted to touch upon um, the, 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 the um, I mean, as part of the cram down, it's great that you know fine shareholders get pushed out the picture, you know, if they're out the money. But there is a moral hazard issue here, and it really touches again on what Sarah was saying. You've got the moratorium, you have, you have the potentially the foxes in charge of the hen house. You have the directors still involved in a business uh, with lenders sitting out there, and. 
what's that going to do? I think that, that, that there's a real concern then that, um, you know, man, you know who is going to look at, you know, what management are doing during that period? And I have to tell you, I, I know that there was some, I mean, again, from a practical perspective, we were heavily involved lender side on the Seat Paginal um, restructuring in Italy, um, <coughs> the first restructuring. Um, and I think that, and uh, I actually got a call from somebody who was involved after we won restructuring of the year because we did a scheme. I literally got a call the day after saying, you know that job you were involved in? I said, yes. He said, they've just filed for insolvency because it was all, you know, actually the valuations were wrong, you know, the, the, the actual financial valuations, um, which was a bit unfortunate. But then what happened was that the company went into something initially called Concordato uh, on Preven Preventiva on Blanco, which effectively meant that the company disappeared for 180 days at least and longer and held the, held the creditors at bay whilst they cooked up a plan effectively to haircut the creditors. And I've had a number of funds and other banks say to me they will never do business in Italy again uh, because they are really concerned about being kept at bay, about being not having any, any real um, say in that sort of thing. So that's the first element. That's crammed down and, some, and, 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 and a little bit about moral hazard. In terms of capacity within the banks and the local um, restructuring professions, the directive, yes, I mean, the aims are, 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 you know, I mean, I think are very interesting and I think are very relevant. But the key thing is that you have the people in the banks um, that do have the ability and work out um, function to actually uh, deal, 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 deal with these um, provisions. And more importantly, I think the judiciary in the, relevant, in the relevant jurisdictions need to be competent and need to be experienced, especially now that you have the valuation um, issue out there. Um, and that, 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 that is key. I mean, you know, when you highlight the difference between the UK and the US, you either have in the UK restructuring professionals who are very experienced and know what they're doing and go in as, um, as, as office holders, or, you have a, or in the US you have a judiciary that's very experienced. But if you have neither, that can create real problems. Um, and as someone said to me, it may be the story, as with all development aid, those who need it the most may, may be the people least capable of making good use of it. And, that, and that, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a concern, and that needs to be addressed. Um, finally, looking at, looking at schemes, um, I mean, the UK scheme has been a tool um, which has been used a lot in cross-border restructurings in recent years and has been one of the UK's best exports. Um, one of the issues, well, one of the key issues is what will Brexit mean for it? Um, Schemes have, been, have proved popular, they're a tried and tested route, um, and it's kind of interesting. Uh, I remember a discussion with a, with a client at, at a hedge fund um, when the Spanish homologation principle first came out under additional provision four, and there, were, there may have been um, an option of restructuring under, under Spanish law or restructuring under the scheme. Um, this particular client said to me, look, that's completely untested under Spanish law. I want to go with what's, 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 what's clear. And what's predictable and what's certain, really to go back to Sarah's themes. And, and in the last decade, have seen a, have seen a huge amount of schemes um, um, out there. I mean, um, as I said, the a scheme will only can only ever be used for horizontal cram down. You can't vertically cram down. You can't uh, take. Um, you can't move companies um, away from shareholders uh, when when shareholders are out the money. But what you can do is combine schemes with other processes. Um, so what will Brexit mean? 
I think the short answer is it shouldn't have an impact at all because there's the recognition um, that an English court takes a very, very wide approach to jurisdiction and essentially needs to be satisfied that the scheme will be recognised and given effect in the jurisdiction in which the scheme company is incorporated. Now, schemes are not within the European insolvency regulation, so that's not going to be an issue. That's not the basis of recognition. Where, where, we've, where we've sought recognition and where the English court have become comfortable is on the basis of an opinion from the local jurisdiction, not a court order, an opinion from an academic or um, a leading practitioner that the scheme will be recognised. And the scheme and, and the opinions have really come in on two bases. The first basis is that the judgment, the scheme judgment, will be recognised under the judgments regulation. Obviously, out, once Brexit happens, that won't be available. But the second basis will still be available, and that's the private international law. And traditionally, when we very first started to think about how schemes could be implemented for foreign companies with English law debt, and I think Rodenstock was the first time um, it happened in Germany with a, with a judgment, although we had, we, had, we, had, we had achieved it previously with Vito and SSP, the, the basis was very simple. It was, you can change an English law contract with another English law contract, and that principle is pretty much recognised throughout the EU, as long as that recognition is not contrary to mandatory principles of, uh, or, or contrary to public policy. So why can't you just re well, can't, why can't an English contract be, be amended by an English <coughs> device like an English a statutory contract, a scheme? And, on, and that's the second basis upon which we've had a number of opinions to tell us that actually schemes will also be recognised. So I think actually my view is that post Brexit. Um, there shouldn't be any impact on the recognition of schemes, although you know time will tell, and you know, and, and maybe uh, academics and uh, practitioners will change change their mind. So that's really, I mean, in my 15 minutes, where I've got to. Thank you, Philip. So just to remind everyone, a scheme of arrangement is where uh, parties demonstrate a relation to English law. And sorry, yeah, I yeah, should have. Um, yeah, sorry. And I think a scheme of arrangement is. I'm assuming uh, knowledge. <laughs> scheme of arrangement um, is um, uh, is a, um, a statutory compromise or arrangement. Uh, it can be almost anything in terms of a deal between the company and its creditors, as long as there's give and take. Um, schemes were traditionally done for English companies only, um, and but really schemes can be done for any company that can be wound up in the UK. So the connection between um, the, so as long as you can find a sufficient connection with the English jurisdiction, English courts will um, allow a scheme to be implemented. So um, a scheme could be implemented and has been implemented for uh, companies incorporated in other jurisdictions on very, very narrow um, connections. And the key connection that we've seen is that the, that the obligations to be subject to the compromise are English law. Um, is English law debt, and as long as you've got that, and, and as long as the local jurisdiction where the scheme come, where, the, where the company is based would recognise that scheme, the English court will, will uh, implement the scheme. And what that's meant is that where you have pan-European um, groups, um, where, where you have uh, subsidiaries in a number of jurisdictions, all with that English law debt, you could pretty much um, restructure the whole group using a scheme. Um, outside of uh, insolvency proceedings without fragmenting um, by having opening different proceedings in different jurisdictions. And that pre-insolvency 
um, um, uh, meth methodology is now, I think, is what's been the catalyst for, um, for, 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 the, for, the, for, the, for this aspect of the harmonization directive. Um, you know, uh, the, it's been replicated or uh, <coughs> in some ways in Spain. We're seeing a replication in the Netherlands now um, and, 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 and across a number of jurisdictions, I think, and France as well, as well, possibly. But, uh, yeah. So in effect, uh, at least for larger corporates in a restructuring, the English uh, law and practice has set a certain standard uh, well ahead of the directive. Is that, is that correct? Or, and and secondly, what is, what is the type of company that can avail itself of these schemes, <coughs> given I'm sure there are some transaction costs to, yeah. to demonstrate that? Um, Presumably, that won't be relevant for um, mid-sized SMEs. Yeah, well, I think that's right. A scheme is not a panacea, but remember this: that uh, all a scheme really is in this context. I mean, really, is a glorified power of attorney. I mean, you have your, your what you're saying is where we need 100% consent and we can't get it, then we have the we have the scheme will allow someone, normally the company, maybe the <laughs> age facility agent, to sign. The new facility documentation, new maybe equity documentation on behalf of everyone. So the underlying deal documentation needs to be done. The scheme is put on top as a power of attorney effectively. The transaction costs, there will be additional transaction costs. Assuming the thing isn't um, challenged, they could be reasonably light, but you know, it, it, it depends what you mean by reasonably light. And the process can take for, you know, five, maybe five weeks, six weeks, you know, a, a quick process. But you know, as you say, um, you know, if, if there's a challenge, if there's if there's a problem, then obviously those costs go mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. Haven't seen many SMEs do it, do it, but and it's mainly a, a big company thing. But it it could be yep. used. Okay. There's no statutory limitation on small right. companies. No, okay. Good. Uh, so uh, we'll go into the the sort of the history of the EU legislation in this area and the new directive in a moment, and sort of think through a bit the the, the obstacles this process may run into. But uh, can I ask people to just sort of put some questions to Sarah and Philip on on the practicalities of the modern European restructuring market and. Um, what the concerns are maybe from, from a few of the country representatives that are here uh, or maybe industry uh, colleagues, um, what, what concerns will come up from, from, uh, from your capitals? Uh, please, could you briefly introduce yourself? Also, yes, please, yeah. my name is Howard Baikan. I work for the Austrian Ministry of Finance. Uh, my question would be this to the practitioners. Um, we have uh, the EU insolvency directive with uh, the centre of the main interest of the company as a point of reference. And on that, there is nothing in this proposal. There's, as you have mentioned, an additional chapter 11 level, which is completely alien to some of our jurisdictions. And I totally see your point of moral hazard there. I think that is also an issue in Austria. But uh, my question is, do we have sufficiently clear rules in cross-border insolvencies as far as uh, the forum and the responsibilities are concerned? Is the center of main interest sufficiently clearly defined now? Or do we need better regulations for cross-border insolvencies? 
I mean, the <laughs> scheme, I mean, well, I mean, in, in the context of schemes, they, they fall outside of the EUIR, um, the European Insolvency Regulation. Um, and so um, I, th th there is at the moment a, a debate going on um, in the English courts which has not been finally determined as to whether if a company which is a company based in Europe has its Comey not in England, can you really do a scheme for that company? Or, you know, in other words, does the, EU, does the European Insolvency Regulation have, a, have, 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 have any application? Um, and, the, 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 well, so that, that, that issue is pretty much determined mm -hmm. as no. But then, then the question is, does the judgments regulation stop in any way? Um, you know, you doing a scheme because of because you don't have you know, because they because really um, schemes fall out do they fall outside or within? And the judge, judges have been very clever um, in just avoiding the topic actually and saying, well, you know, we don't have to decide that because they're, they're, we can find a basis in the exceptions to the regulation. Um, and I think they do that because no case, I mean, no restructuring is the same. And they're, 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 they're solution-driven, um, in the UK at least, as opposed to rule-driven. Um, I think the, the problem is that if you were to be too prescriptive on, on, on that issue, you could find a number of restructurings just failing. I mean, I, if I think about the, the restructurings we've been involved in, if I think about APCOA, if I think about, which was a car parking, um, which was a car parking um, um, company with with subsidiaries all around the, um, uh, Europe, but with 5,000 employees in, in, in Germany, um, if, if it had been decided that actually you couldn't do a scheme because you had to, because the Comey of the two German companies were in Germany and then there was an Austrian entity, there was a, I mean, you just wouldn't have been able to restructure it and, and the thing would have failed. Um, so I think in some ways, not being too prescriptive um, actually and being more facilitative may mean that you, you get to a better result. But I, I appreciate that actually, from a certainty point of view, it doesn't help. Okay, so a wonderful example, a single market in legal services emerges free of regulation and uh, private law just makes Europe uh, work quite, quite smoothly, it seems, yeah, without uh, much, much interference. Well, it's re it's regulated. it is regulated, yeah. but, it's, uh, but it's regulated in the sense of... Um, you know, it's regulated by a particular court. Now, that's not to say that homologation in Spain or the, the, the new Dutch equivalent, when that comes out, couldn't have the same effect. Um, you know, uh, but if you look at ESUG, ESUG was looked at as, a, um, um, as, as, a, as, a, as an option for APCOA, um, but that would only affect the two comp German companies co-med in Germany. It just wouldn't work for the rest of the group. Sorry, uh, ESOC is the German law. The German yeah. law. Uh, yeah. The yeah. German, um, yeah. Andres Sapir. Yes, um, thanks. It was very interesting. I'm, I'm not a specialist at all on, on, those, uh, on those matters, so I, I just want to ask a very prosaic uh, question. Um, I mean, Italy and Spain have been mentioned uh, a few times in, 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 in different contexts. And, um, I mean... It, Number one, is it, would it be fair among those southern countries to, to contrast uh, the two and uh, in terms of their regimes? And uh, the second is that, I mean, if indeed um, the, this contrast seems to be valid, um, I mean, what, what, what I wonder is, uh, I mean, Italy 
comes out pretty poorly in number of indicators uh, that we have seen uh, we have seen before. Uh, it has high NPLs. I mean, so when you look at the situation of uh, the debt, uh, the private debt accumulation, and what's remained on the on the books of the banks, uh, it's obviously much of a concern. What would it take to change the regime? What kind of what what would be the key elements? I mean, one has spoken about sort of the uh, the specialized courts and all of those kind of issues, but what are really the main impediments? Uh, you know, what is it that you need yeah. to unlock in that system? Or, or there are so many things. Uh, is it something doable? Uh, is it something that would take ten years? Uh, can, can you give me a sense a little bit of how one can tackle the uh, I, don't, the, I, don't, think, the I don't think it's fair to speak Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so I, I think one might add to this the question, um, is there a political willingness in a country like Italy to allow that write-down uh, in uh, the exposures of, of key creditors. You know, often the, the, even the mid-sized SMEs have you know, significant non-bank uh, funding, and all of these would take a hit. So there is um, a spillover into other parts of the, of the uh, financial system and, and other companies. So uh, do you see a political willingness to fix the regime in a way that it would facilitate a, a swifter and much more momentous uh, restructuring that the supervisors very much seek. Yeah. I mean, I'm not an Italian expert and completely ill-qualified to talk about Italy specifically, but just taking it outside a particular country and just talking about it generally, I think there are two key things that matter. Um, one is, as you say, the regulatory willingness to offer regulatory forbearance because in the end, all of these things result in the bank taking a write-down. So I think there may be different solutions in a heavily domestically banked economy where the regulator is absolutely willing to take a lead and you've got a small number of regional domestic banks who largely bank the economy. And there something that looks much more like a regulator-led, consensual, entirely out-of-court approach, um, which is, uh, and you know, one of the really good examples of that was the Southeast Asian crisis, Thailand, where that was the model that was used. So I think the starting point is it won't be a one-size-fits-all because you do need to look at the economy and how the economy is funded and how you're realistically going to absorb that regulatory loss. None of this works if the regulator isn't willing to offer some sort of regulatory forbearance, if the scale of the write-down is significant. And then I think the second thing I would say is that I think what matters to modern investors, and here I think one of the problems is that a lot of the finance literature looks more at closely banked domestic economies, so banks with workout teams and the way they approach credit assessment. And I'm certainly not an expert on this, but my perception is that many modern investors, the direct lending market, the bond market, approach investment in a different sort of way. It's very hard to isolate the extent to which the actual law on the books, the actual restructuring law on the books, feeds into the overall investment decision. But what I think is fundamentally important is the investor's general perception 
of the legal environment. So not so much what precise rule will be applied in this particular scenario, but how, does the, how open is this jurisdiction to market solutions? How much do they have other social concerns which will result in prioritizing those concerns over the market? I think that general sense of legal environment is almost certainly more significant than the law on the books. And that's what leads to the concern that in the harmonization project, you might unwittingly make those differences greater and not smaller. So that's not a sort of Italian response, but I'm, I'm sure that what you've got to do is somehow change the DNA of a legal environment. If what makes an investor unwilling to invest in that jurisdiction is their sense that the environment is generally hostile. And then in the end, those two things come together. How realistic is it for the regulator to offer the regulatory forbearance? You know, actually, how much will taking that right down really drive the economy on? together with how does that feed into a commitment to change the overall sort of institutional legal environment. And a, and mm -hmm. a great example of that actually is France, because, um, uh, you know, a number of years ago, people mm -hmm. would say, we used to say, oh, you know, if I do business in France and the company can uh, go into Southgard, <coughs> I, I, I'm in danger of getting termed out for 10 years. I can get completely, you know, uh, you know uh, turned over. But actually, because France also has the mandataire ad hoc um, um, uh, process, which is, a, which is, a, which is something where, where, whereby the company can appoint a, an officer of the court to basically run a negotiation, which is sp supposed to be confidential, although it always seems to appear in debt while and real that a mandataire has been appointed, but le leaving that aside. Um, you know, the, it, it, create, it creates a, a forum for debate and for discussion, because at the end of the day, and as Sarah said, you know, what, what investors want is to know that they will have an ability um, to, to, to do a deal, whatever that is, and therefore that's where the flexibility comes in. Um, so, and, and therefore it's quite, it's quite interesting how people's views of France have changed because of the mandataire, and so they've changed the DNA um, of, 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 what, you know, of doing business in France, um, which, is, which is great. And, uh, and I, think, I think that's where people, what, what we're seeing is a sea change across Europe, away from formal proceedings to more permissive more, um, uh, and more discussions, more, more negotiation-based. Okay, um, one more question there, yeah. Uh, Lydia Tioli from the European Banking Federation. I'd like to ask a question to, thank you very much, to Professor uh, Patterson. Thank you very much for your insightful presentation. <coughs> you refer to market norms that are used in um, consensual restructurings like the London approach and the um, uh, install principles. And since we have in mind that there was a relative role played from the Bank of England at the original stages of the London approach uh, that uh, kind of helped these procedures to, to go on successfully. Uh, and having also in mind the emer emerging role of distressed debt players uh, in, in modern restructurings, whether you think that in Europe we need a more rigorous uh, supervision of these new kinds of players uh, so as to ensure uh, that they go along these market norms uh, as well, so as to ensure that consensual restructurings, market-based restructurings are, are going ahead in Europe as well. So thank you. Thank you. I mean, that's a great question. So I don't think there is any prospect of using a market norms approach in a distressed debt, actively secondary trading market. I just don't think it will ever work. Because um, 
Funds trade on uncertainty. They leverage the ability to see a little bit of value that somebody else has left on the table. Um, they just operate in a completely different institutional environment from a bank. And that actually is where the great promise of the proposal lies. So in a more diversified economy, and as you move away from a heavily banked economy, that's why I think you need law. And that's where I think the proposal really fits in. So as you see, as you see funds coming in, particularly as direct <coughs> lenders, then you definitely need restructuring law, because I don't think market norms are very likely to work. And in that environment, certainly at the large end, I think the proposal does, does great work. And that's where member states have been going too. But if your economy looks different, so if you have a large SME economy where the funds perhaps are not going, particularly if it's at the smaller end of the SME end, and the funds are not going to invest in significant numbers because the businesses are simply too small, the investment proposition is just not very interesting for them, and that economy remains heavily domestically banked, then the market norms approach, my view, the market norms approach is a better approach than the law. Um, and plenty of jurisdictions have shown that it can still have its day if that's how the economy is formed, provided there's regulatory commitment. Um, so there has to be regulatory commitment and there has to be the necessary regulatory forbearance. So I think you have to start... Um, and I suppose the message of my comment is it isn't. It can never be one size fits all, either jurisdictionally or between large and small companies. So you have to start by looking at what the shape of the economy is and then work out what tool you think mm -hmm. might work best. Okay. Yeah, and we'll get back to these uh, interbank uh, coordination arrangements when, when Catherine comments on some of the work EBRD has done in, in emerging Europe. Yeah. Um, I'm conscious of the time. Should we go on and talk a little bit about uh, the happy work the Commission will be doing in shepherding its proposal through the <laughs> process this this year? Um, I think at this point we let Philip go to okay, catch the Eurostar, hopefully, apologies. with a smooth transition uh, back. Yeah, thanks Thank so much you. for Thank coming you. over. Thank you. Thank you. And um, now, Mr. Stein, so. Um, there's been a long history when, as uh, novice here in Brussels, I read some of the documents, there seems a little bit of frustration in the Commission about how previous recommendations were implemented. Uh, so how forceful is this proposal? How ambitious is it? Uh, where do you think you will run into the greatest headwinds? Okay. Thanks a lot. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, I think I could already fill more than my time slot simply by picking up on some of the things that the, the other speakers have, have said. Uh, I will consciously not do that at the moment. Maybe we'll come back to that in the, in the discussion afterwards still. There is also no time to present the proposal as such um, in detail. Um, so what I'll try to do is I'll talk a little bit um, about the motivation and background, um, which includes the fate of, of other attempts that we have made uh, earlier on uh, in the process. I will talk about the general approach that the proposal takes rather than talking about its details and I'll talk a little bit about the impact um, that we would expect to see um, if the proposal were adopted more or less in the form 
it has been presented, but we all, we all know that no piece of legislation comes out of the process the way it has gone into the process. So the, the, the interesting part has only just started, and we've just had the first meeting with member states uh, Monday this week. So we're at the, at the very beginning uh, of the process. So starting with the motivation and background, uh, I'll just run you uh, through a couple of basic features that we have, that we have um, witnessed when looking at the state of play uh, in Europe. Uh, currently, and we've looked at the, at the, at the usual outcome uh, of uh, the way member states are dealing with companies that are in financial difficulty, and the result of that uh, overview is that in most member states, uh, liquidation is still the most likely outcome, even for viable companies that could be rescued. We have a limited number of member states where today, in that type of situation, restructuring is the more likely outcome. Um, so we're, we're faced with what is essentially, in many member states, still a liquidation culture. Um, every year, uh, 200,000 firms um, become insolvent in the EU. That's roughly 600 uh, per day. Half of the companies in Europe don't survive the first five years uh, of their existence. Uh, and of course, when we're looking at these liquidation insolvency situations, we're not looking at isolated companies in and of themselves. Um, about one in every six insolvencies was triggered by the insolvency of another company. So we see a lot of knock-on effects uh, of insolvency that potentially could also be avoided if uh, it is possible to save and restructure a company. In addition to that, and that's a specific internal market uh, point uh, and reasoning, uh, one in four insolvencies uh, is a cross-border insolvency. It has significant uh, cross-border elements. Now, I think you've mentioned this before in your question, we have a regulation on insolvency that deals with jurisdiction and the recognition of, of judgments where you go through a formal insolvency uh, proceeding. And I think there we have a fairly, fairly solid legal framework in place, but when we're talking about restructuring in order to avoid insolvency, then the cross-border element is a particular additional obstacle. Uh, a cross-border nature of a situation makes it much more difficult to restructure a company. We've heard one example um, already from Philip on a company where it was found out that you know, the legal framework available only is applicable to the elements that are placed in one member state. Um, in cross-border situations, generally, this doesn't work. Sometimes it works if you have two member states involved. If it's more than two, our judgment has been it's impossible to restructure uh, a company. Uh, and, and that obviously has uh, internal market uh, um, consequences. And not only in dealing with restructuring, it also has internal market consequences on investment decisions. Uh, and here I think we've heard one very good illustration of a particular type of investor, you know, the distressed debt traders. Um, and Sarah has been, has been you know, very clear in explaining how the existence of a restructuring possibility uh, informs those decisions. But this is not only true for distressed debt traders, this is true for all sorts of investors uh, uh, to some extent. Uh, so the, the absence of a possibility has a stifling effect on cross-border uh, investment. 
just let me briefly mention the, the job losses uh, of about 1.7 million per year in these insolvencies, where we think if restructuring were available more widely, a substantial number of those jobs could also be saved. And then we've seen the charts on the recovery rates. Uh, you've seen the vast differences between member states in the recovery rates uh, in, in liquidation. Uh, and here, our findings were, again, if you compare member states where restructuring is the most likely outcome of dealing with these situations with those where liquidation is the most likely outcome, you have a market difference in average recovery rates. In restructuring-oriented countries, um, you're talking about uh, average 83 cents on the euro recovery. It's 25 cents less uh, on the euro where you have a liquidation-oriented uh, culture. So we see a lot of, uh, a lot of scope for, for improvement there. And then, and I know this event is, is mainly focused on restructuring, so I won't even mention the second chance debt discharge aspect of the proposal for, for over-indebted entrepreneurs, although this is a very important part of the proposal, but maybe not of this event. You know, the, the performance of member state systems, um, apart from, you know, the extent to which they encourage restructuring, um, the performance of those systems uh, is also very much influenced by the efficiency of their judicial systems. Uh, I think it goes without saying that the mere length of proceedings has a huge effect because time is so much uh, of the essence, both in insolvency and in restructuring on the success um, of these procedures that are available. We're facing a difference where in, in roughly half the member states, these procedures take more than two years and in some of them uh, up to four years. Uh, and, and, and these efficiency shortcomings have been, have been found to be a particular obstacle um, to the post-crisis uh, debt uh, deleveraging uh, process. So uh, these, this, these are the facts that we've been looking at. And the, the decision to do something comes, comes basically from, from three different, three different uh, work streams. Um, first, I've mentioned the, the, the capital markets uh, investment uh, internal markets aspects that I've already touched upon. Uh, in 2015, the Capital Market Union Action Plan um, announced a legislative, uh, legislative proposal on business insolvency, including early restructuring uh, and second chance in order to address the barriers uh, to the internal market um, that I have described. Then we have the single market strategy that I will pass over because this is mostly related to the, um, the second chance aspect uh, of the proposal. But then the third source um, of motivation to come forward with this proposal is the financial stability uh, uh, pillar. Uh, and here the ECOFIN Council conclusions of July 2016 uh, on a roadmap to complete the banking union underlined the importance of the work uh, in the field of insolvency law uh, in order to support efforts to reduce future levels um, of non-performing loans. You've mentioned that there is a bit of a history. Um, uh, there was a, a first a commission communication in 2012 um, uh, to, to, to review the insolvency systems and encourage more of a restructuring culture. In 2014, we've had a recommendation from the Commission uh, in that respect. And whilst we appreciate that in some member states there are reform processes are ongo uh, ongoing or they have already changed their legislation, 
the evaluation that was carried out um, of the extent to which member states have followed up to this recommendation in both 2015 and 2016 came to the conclusion that there is movement, but that there is not enough movement um, uh, at member state level so that uh, an EU initiative uh, is necessary. I will not carry on about the detail of the preparation. There have been a lot of expert groups. Uh, there has been consultation with member states. There has been a large public consultation uh, with all stakeholders. Uh, and all of this has fed into the proposal um, that we currently see uh, on the table. Our, our general impression is that there is, uh, both from the economic side, from the practitioner side, but also from the member state side, there is some appetite. There is some general recognition of the fact that things need to change here, that there is a need for improvement. Um, of course, when it gets really detailed, the, the difficulties crop up and the differences between member states and the extent to which they are attached to their traditional uh, legal systems. But that's what we have to work on now uh, as we discuss uh, the proposal. Uh, just trying to be brief, uh, a word on the, on the approach, um, because some mention has been made of the different traditions, you know, whichever way you want to categorize them as debtor-friendly or creditor-friendly. There are various other ways of, uh, of suggesting, uh, of, of, of uh, describing this. Uh, I think it's very, it's very important to, uh, to highlight the minimum harmonization uh, approach uh, in that respect. Now, so we want to leave a lot of flexibility for member states in order to focus on those parts of the restructuring process that we think are indispensable to have there in order to make this work. So we have provisions on those, but the aim was to leave a wide margin of flexibility for member states in order to be able to adjust uh, the, 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 the transposition of this directive um, to, their, uh, to their national legal systems. Now, we're relatively, when you read the proposal, you will see that it really focuses on restructuring. We're not dealing with insolvency law proper, apart from trying to make procedures a bit more efficient and talking about training and specialization, of course, but otherwise this is only about preventive restructuring. Now, I think there is a difference in member states between insolvency law and restructuring law. Insolvency law is very firmly entrenched. We, uh, I exaggerate, but in a number of cases, I think you know, member states say we've had this in place for 100 years. You know, this, is, this is very difficult to change. The approach that we've always taken uh, uh, would have to evolve. In the area of restructuring, it's slightly different because we've seen movement. In a lot of, in a lot of member states, this is a new feature. This, you know, they're considering introducing it. They have recently introduced it. We have the recommendation in place, which has had a certain influence. So we see a greater convergence uh, in relation to pre-insolvency restructuring that should also make it somewhat easier to agree on common standards. Um, and uh, I think that's as much as I want to say in that respect. Maybe one word on the impact um, uh, that, we, that we intend, uh, that, that we hope to see. Well, this depends very much uh, on the point of departure that we have in member states. And the situation is very varied in that respect. Some member states would have to completely newly introduce such a restructuring framework where it doesn't uh, exist yet. Uh, others would have to substantially uh, change the existing systems, but the approach was, again, on the basis of minimum harmonization, be inspired by models that work in Europe, 
Um, and of course, those that work reasonably well or very well, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense to require changes uh, in that respect. So there would be smaller changes. Probably no one could leave everything completely unchanged. Uh, improvements can always be made. Um, uh, but uh, we'll have this diverse effect. Uh, this would, and this is also a reaction to what Sarah said about the SME uh, uh, element of this, uh, and I would like to conclude on the fact that while in our, uh, in our research we've seen that in most of the member states where these models exist, it's mainly bigger corporations that make use of restructuring. So there is a big problem for SMEs. Uh, so what we've tried to do in the proposal, and it's open to debate whether to a sufficient extent or not, is to lower the barriers uh, for SMEs uh, uh, to use uh, this system. Um, and uh, yes, let okay. me conclude on that note. Good, we'll Thanks get back to that yeah. in the Q&A and also how a bit of political momentum could develop behind that before we do so. Uh, let's ask Catherine, from your experience, how does this need to be supported from parts of the government outside the justice field? Uh, what's the capacity needed in the judiciary, in the private sector to implement a good restructuring regime? And uh, looking at the 10 or 11 new EU member states, how significant do you think is, is the ownership for this? Pleasure to be here uh, today and, and to discuss this very interesting uh, topic. Uh, at the EBRD, we, we welcome this uh, uh, proposed directive um, and the impetus we hope it will give to restructuring and reorganization within the EU. Uh, I should say we have 12, uh, at the moment, 12 EU countries, uh, uh, member states, which, which are countries of operation of the EBRD, where the EBRD invests. Uh, and I have personally been active in insolvency and oh. <laughs> and I've just testing this and I've personally been active in insolvency and capacity building projects in about half of those about six six countries so I'd, I will uh, just make some comments on the capacity side uh, and illustrate this with reference to some recent experience uh, in particular looking at uh, uh, countries such as Bulgaria, Croatia, Cyprus, Greece, Hungary, and Slovenia. Uh, I think definitely one of the key implementation challenges for the, of the proposed directive is uh, in respect to capacity, particularly capacity of the judiciary and capacity of insolvency practitioners. Um, I'd like just to echo what, what uh, Andrea said in that uh, there is a definite need for a change in culture uh, and an approach to reorganization and restructuring within uh, EBRD countries of operation. Um, typically, uh, most countries have a reorganization uh, procedure within their insolvency law framework. Uh, however, many countries uh, don't use this very often. It's not, it's not very often used. And there is an overall lack of a supporting restructuring culture. Uh, so often we hear, uh, I've, I've been working recently in, in Hungary and also in Croatia, we hear of a, a very much a first-past-the-post approach, creditors rushing to enforcement or liquidation, not taking the time to, uh, to work together and consider uh, whether there is in fact an opportunity for reorganization. 
Um, on the legal front, uh, it's true to say that there's been a lot of change, a lot of flux within Europe uh, in, in the area of insolvency over the last few years, particularly in response to the financial crisis. Um, this has potentially led to also to a, a general lack of stability uh, and lack of lack of stability and lack of, uh, of, of legal predictability. Uh, and just to illustrate that, uh, uh, if you take the example of Slovenia, uh, since 2008, it has amended or uh, substantially revised, in some cases, its insolvency legislation eight times. Uh, and in 2013 was, 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 was the most significant uh, amendment. Um, so I think the, the commission proposal is very much welcome, but it will introduce an additional uh, uh, level of flux into the system. Uh, it will also introduce some very, if it's adopted in its current form, will introduce some very important uh, provisions to support restructuring and re reorganization, particularly uh, with respect to protection of new money, uh, general outlawing of the um, ipso facto or termination on bankruptcy clause. Uh, and, and as Andreas mentioned, uh, while uh, a lot, while both countries have reorganisation frameworks, um, and have actually introduced pre-insolvency or preventive restructuring procedures, this isn't the case for all. So we know that Hungary has quite a, a, an outdated insolvency framework, and it doesn't have any form of pre-insolvency or. Uh, expedited uh, insolvency procedure for the reorganization of businesses. So some of the countries, I, I think, while the, the, the proposal seeks to harmonize uh, and create a certain minimum standards, some of the countries will clearly have further to go than, than, than others, uh, certainly within emerging Europe. Um, What's interesting, uh, what we've seen from, 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 from the EBRD's direct involvement, is that the capacity of courts and insolvency practitioners has in many ways shaped the insolvency laws of national uh, states. Uh, so giving Slovenia again as an example, where we worked in 2013 and 14, um, we we understood what it, or over the course of our, of our projects that the types of amendments which were being introduced were being done so very much on the basis of what the courts could manage in terms of capacity and, and workload. So trying not to give the courts, in a sense, too much discretion and too much to, to administer. And also uh, what could be done in relation to insolvency practitioners because at the time, the profession was relatively undeveloped, and it was uh, it was felt that one needed to consider what um, degree of responsibility an insolvency practitioner could realistically be able to bear and to discharge. Uh, so, I think in terms of uh, capacity, it's worth looking at uh, knowledge and experience of judges and insolvency practitioners, but also turning back to the point on, on efficiency uh, workload, because uh, obviously encouraging more uh, reorganization um, at an early stage, often reorganization is more complex to achieve than a straightforward 
liquidation and sale of the debtor's assets. Uh, we discussed earlier, I think Sarah and Philip both had uh, some interesting perspectives on the issue of valuation. Uh, we know that there will be, if, if, if implemented in its current form, uh, the requirement for judges and potentially also insolvency practitioners to be familiar with uh, going concern valuations, liquidation valuations. Uh, what I would add to that is that in many countries that we have worked in, so in emerging Europe, the valuation industry is not yet developed. So if I take the example of Croatia, uh, which tried to introduce uh, an um, auditor's opinion uh, stating that the reorganization plan had a, had a realistic chance of success in the case of their 2012 pre-bankruptcy settlement procedure, uh, they found it was actually reduced to uh, a box-ticking exercise. No one wanted to... No, no, reputable firm or uh, leading firm really wanted to, to get involved in that. So I think we have to be also conscious of it, of not just the uh, capacity of the judges and the insolvency practitioners, but also the, the wider industry. And I think that's reflected as well in the report. Uh, wrap up. So we yes, leave some yeah. time for Q&A, maybe yeah. some <laughs> final remarks. Yeah. So uh, uh, I think... Um, just to just mention a few points on training and on uh, training of judges and, and, and insolvency practitioners. I think, I think the, the points there are very much the same. Um, the uh, directive is quite broadly, the proposed directive is quite broadly drafted. So the questions about the content of the training, how it should be conducted, uh, how it can be funded and undertaken, it's left very much to individual member states' uh, discretion, and I think we'd be very interested in, in speaking further the, with the Commission and understanding how, how perhaps this could be supported. Um, I'd just like to mention in, the re in respect of judges that in many of the countries where, where, uh, where the, of these 12 <laughs> uh, EU countries where EBRD operates, there is no specialized commercial court system. So uh, I think I, I can only think of Croatia, uh, Slovenia, and I think in, in Hungary, its bankruptcy cases are dealt with at the second instance court. But as a rule, they go to courts of general jurisdiction. And when we talk about training, we also have to think: Do we? How do we? How, how do we make ensure that it gets the right the right people? Um, um, yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> I think that's uh, what I'm Right, about. okay, so I see your notes. Uh, people <laughs> don't, are don't encouraged to go to the EBRD website and follow the good work you're doing. Um, so there are a couple of comments and questions from colleagues and others in the room. Uh, before we get there, can I just sort of, as a exercise in audience participation, can we just sort of raise our hands if people think this directive, this regime, fully resourced and implemented, will be a boost to uh, corporate investment in, in your countries? Hands up. Uh -huh. Okay, so yeah, the, the economists here, uh, very good. Yeah, okay, thank you, thank you. No, okay, so uh, no, I didn't mean okay. to uh, get questions the from these. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so 
maybe could we think through, is this something that uh, really holds back uh, investment, which I think is still something like a third under the pre-crisis level in, in the Eurozone at least? Um, and uh, also, Mr. Stein mentioned the um, notion of the second chance, the idea that uh, someone who's gone through a bankruptcy can re-enter, reapply him or herself to uh, the world of business and get a fresh start without being stigmatized for having failed ones. Um, is this a significant regime change? And, and if so, who's, who's the one to push this? Right now, in my sort of naivety, I think this is sort of another single market idea. Who's really um, pushing this? Yeah? So at least those who've raised their hands, how significant would that be? Um, Andre, Maria? I'm, I'm going to ask a question, not answer. Uh, ask a question then. Um, the mic, yeah. Emerges from Bruegel. Um, and just two questions that uh, Rosa, as you were speaking. The first one is Is it, and this is more uh, for a literature review type of question, is it unequivocal that countries that have got a debt restructuring culture do better than cultures that have uh, sort of liquidity cultures? Um, and I can imagine that this may not be one answer depending on the circumstances. I mean, if you think of countries with very big NPLs of the type that we see in Greece and in Cyprus, 40%. One would probably be more favorable than others, but in a sort of a steady state scenario where you don't have systemic NPLs, uh, do, do we have an answer to which one of the two regimes is better in, sort of in, in terms of cultures and promoting, you know, second chance um, uh, and entrepreneurship in more general? Um, so th that would be the second. The, the, the other thing I'd like to ask you is: uh, you mentioned the bank uh, union motivation behind all this exercise, and um, to how far, in your assessment? The, the inability to make progress with insolvency harmonization is going to prevent a full banking union. Okay, can we collect a few more questions and then just have one round of, of responses from uh, all three of you who are still here, yeah? Um, anyone else, just gentlemen there in the first row in the back. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Marek Grochowski from the Polish uh, Permanent Representation. I have the question that uh, our experts in Poland are, are, are being pre preoccupied with. That is the relationship between this uh, new Commission's proposal and the insolvency regulation and uh, how, how the experts on the panel see the inter interplay between the two instruments. This is for us uh, very important because we are quite worried that the efficiency of the new framework might be much limited if there is not, uh, if this new type of proceedings uh, does not enter into the scope of the, of, the, of, the, of the new insolvency regulation. Thank you. Are you, are you clear? On the mm -hmm. Yeah, okay, fine. Um, there was a colleague from the DG Growth uh, who uh, just wanted to make a brief comment on the, the notion of the second uh, chance. Uh, maybe just a, a minute or so to say no, no, uh, how very, you're looking Very at quickly, it. just uh, to, to give the perspective, the entrepreneurial perspective, that uh, at the same day with the, uh, that uh, adopted the draft uh, directive adopting a communication from uh, DigiGrow on scale-up, uh, start-up and scale-up initiative that uh, a, ma a main barrier of, uh, for scale-up uh, in European market, uh, of course, is uh, identify the 
um, the uh, insolvency issue, and of course, the, f the fear of failure is uh, a key element uh, of, of, of this respect. So there is a literature developed also by DigiGrow from the SME perspective on the last report on the SME report of 2015-2016 identify second chance as a key element in, in, in the report. And of course, we follow very close with the colleagues from DigiJust the development of, of the directive and also in the context of the European semester, the development of from the national perspective of the various member states. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so uh, this is truly a cross-commission initiative with also the colleagues in the financial and capital markets uh, directed also quite closely engaged. Yeah? Uh, any other questions? Um, uh, Mr. Weigland, yeah? Uh, yes. One more, yeah. Uh, uh, one that came to my mind when I was listening to the discussion on the, on the panel because we were mentioning banking union, we were mentioning capital markets union, we were mentioning non-performing loans, and also uh, maybe future lending capacities. And be between all those things, there is, there is a trade-off. If I make a, make a system more creditor-friendly, I also, and that's very clear also in the financial literature, uh, banks become more reluctant to lend. So I reduce the level of loans in, in the national economy. Uh, we've heard that maybe the system doesn't work too well for SMEs, at least there were doubts. But then if I want to move from a bank-based system to a capital markets-based system, especially for SMEs, I wonder how this is going to work with that proposal because then it certainly cannot uh, fulfill that promise. And uh, reduction of non-performing loans is another matter. If I uh, increase uh, through a moratorium and additional procedures the time with which uh, the time uh, th that an entrepreneur, maybe an honest one, yeah. may uh, drag on the procedure yeah. until the loan gets worked yeah. out. Okay. I wonder how that so, um, as so we need to wrap up the killing, question. Are we trying to kill too many birds <laughs> yeah. with one stone? So the question yeah. is, is this a, a, a shock to the financial system that uh, makes sense in the current rebalancing of uh, banks and capital markets? Yeah? Um, shall we leave it with that and then maybe give each of you just a, a minute or two to react uh, with apologies for slightly going uh, over opportunity time. Maybe Sarah, do you want to... Um yeah, well, I was wondering actually whether Andreas wants to go back. Uh, yeah, so, so, I think no, it has wanna, possibly wanna, outstayed my welcome on comments. So I <laughs> maybe it's first. better if I go last because then there's a risk I will I will speak longer than I should. Academics not famous famous for their brevity, but anyway, here we go. Um, so I think the first question was around the sort of the whether it's unequivocal, um, and I, I think there I will leave it to Andreas for his. Uh, the, the research the Commission's done. I mean, what I would say is that I think the finance literature actually shows quite a nuanced picture, um, and that really feeds into all my previous comments around general culture, and I do think that different investors approach the investment decision in a different way and at different levels of the market. I don't think there's one type of investment decision. So the role that law plays in investment decisions is difficult to identify. It's difficult to identify for anyone, and then it's difficult to pick it out 
satisfactorily for each type of investor, but I'm sure the Commission will have specific objectives on that. And this is an area I am researching at the moment, so I'm writing about this at the moment. Um, the relationship between the European insolvency regulation and the proposal, I think that's a very good question. I'm going to limit myself in the interests of brevity. Um, I think what's really fascinating is that the European insolvency regulation, the recast, shows an ambition to bring restructuring within it. And so there is a sense of a homogenous um, regime emerging in which the European insolvency regulation is no longer limited to insolvency and restructuring is an integral part of it. But one of the real paradoxes of that is that the most significant regimes, not just the English scheme of arrangement, but also the mandatory ad hoc in France, which Philip mentioned, fall outside the regulation. Um, and that's, I think, a bit of a paradox and, and requires a little bit more thought about how that all fits together. And I think that probably picks up on the gentleman from Austria's comment around the, the Comey concept which becomes a little bit limiting to pick up on Andreas's comment if we're trying to do an entire cross-border restructuring. So I think possibly that's going to need a bit more thought, um, but possibly not now. That's something which I think we can think about more slowly. And then finally, the more sort of creditor-friendly moving from a bank-based system to a capital markets-based system. I think you're entirely right, but in exactly the same way that I would say we have to start to think about SMEs separately, I think we also have to start thinking about what the design of a capital markets-based system for an SME looks like. Because at the moment, if you invest in an SME, you do it by intense diligence involving going and talking to management. Uh, you can't do that in a capital markets-based system. And I haven't yet heard a convincing description of how you really package SMEs together in a way that works for the capital markets. Direct investment, I think, is something different, where investment funds lend to SMEs. That's happening already. Um, huge number of funds across Europe active in that space, and I think we'll just see that continue to grow. So that, I think, is okay. But the capital markets question for me is something slightly different. Okay, good. The, the material for future Google seminars on <laughs> capital markets union. Uh, any, any reactions just, or um, uh, then give the final word to... I seem to have lost the microphone. Uh, can I yeah, just a few additional comments. Just, just, just a few additional uh, comments. I think, I think uh, um, the first question related to you know which which country is presents the uh, the best example, and I think uh, just just from 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 some of the work we've done, what's very interesting is is that obviously certain jurisdictions follow follow others. It's, it's quite natural. So, for example. I think Portugal in insolvency typically follows Germany. Germany is a very important model for a lot of Central and Eastern European uh, countries. So I think there will be, uh, I mean, there, there has been a certain level of cross-fertilization already, uh, but I think also countries will, will naturally follow the jurisdiction which they've always uh, looked to for, for uh, leadership and for development in, in, in this area of insolvency. Um, uh, in terms of the uh, of the interplay between the regulation and the directive, I think that's been covered by 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 Sarah. I think what I would also add to what what Sarah said is is that uh, increasingly uh, the the distinction as to what is uh, completely out of court, what is 
pre-insolvency, mm. what is insolvency, it's all become quite blurred. So it's actually, uh, I think when, when we were looking at pre-insolvency uh, proceedings and how to bring these into the regulation, that which is uh, the, 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 the new recast regulation, which will be uh, effective later this year, um, it's quite hard to, sit to, to just to identify which procedures ought to be included and, and, and which, 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 which ought not to be included. And, and I think member states had a certain degree of, of discretion about what, they, what procedures they decided to propose uh, were included. So in the UK, for example, we, we heard um, left schemes or arrangements out, out, outside. Um, but, but certainly the uh, proposed directive is, is complementary to the regulation because it looks at more substantive harmonization, although it doesn't touch on all, on all areas, and, and particularly it doesn't touch on the area of priorities and insolvency, so priorities of empl employee claims, for example, taxes, which are really big sort of hot potatoes. Uh, in terms of killing too many birds with, with, with one stone, uh, I think insolvency undoubtedly has uh, is, is has has many many facets, and it, it has a, 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 a particularly wide impact, uh, financial impact. In, at the EBRD, we're particularly interested in, in 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 what insolvency does in terms of, of of the attractiveness of the investment climate, because having that that legal predictability, um, trying to ensure you know the, the greatest possible returns for creditors. These are all aspects that that make a, a country's uh, investment climate attractive. And that's what we, we as, a, as a development bank try, try, to, try to do. Okay. So I think I'll just pass on now to Thank you. And we'll leave <laughs> Catherine's number for requests about technical assistance. <laughs> 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 uh, Mr. Stein, brief. Yes, yes. Uh, two remarks from my side. One is on the question on how unequivocal the findings are in terms of liquidation versus restructuring. Countries, if I, if I can uh, oversimplify that. Uh, well, I mean, as any academic would probably expect, very few things in life are completely unequivocal. Um, so, I, and I think that's, that would be the expected reply. You know, I don't, we're not an academic institution, and, you know, you can, you can, you can come up with all the, you know, the details and the, the fine-tuning and, you know, be, pay respect to all the, the differences between member states. I think we have to get a bit of a pan-European view. We know that there are a lot of countries where liquidation is the preferred outcome that perform well and that have highly efficient insolvency systems that secure high recovery rates um, for, the, for the creditors. And Germany would be uh, one example uh, of such a member state where if you look at the tables they, you know, in the World Bank system, you know, they're, they're ranked extremely highly. Um, yet, even you know, if you ask practitioners, uh, and in Germany the restructuring is possible, but it is only possible within the framework of a formal insolvency uh, procedure with all the implications uh, that that has. If you ask the practitioners there, and I get a lot of feedback from uh, particularly German practitioners at the moment, it says, yes, the, the system works well, but there is room for improvement. And yes, we restructure within the context of insolvency proceedings, but time is of the essence. Uh, the earlier, the better, I think, is what we've heard already. And I, I get the, uh, the feedback a lot of times. Uh, we, we, yes, we, we apply the rules, uh, but we, often we come too late. You know, the, the results could have been even much better you know, had we had a chance to intervene earlier. So I think that's my reply to that.
plus I think the statement that although you know nothing is unequivocal, I think it still is a remarkable difference. You know, taking note of the simplification that that involves. You know, if you see the difference in recovery rates between the two groups um, okay. of countries. Uh, the second thing, uh, and there I would like to, you know, sort of bring back, you know, non-performing loans, uh, killing too many birds with one stone. Uh, maybe we can. Uh, we, I think this is a bit of the, the heart of the discussion. To me, it's not so much killing too many birds with one stone. I think there is only one bird. Um, we're trying to introduce this uh, restructuring framework that should be available everywhere. So we, only, we don't want to kill the bird, we want to create a bird. Uh, it's only one bird, it should exist in every member state. I think it's a legitimate question to ask, you know, how many feathers does the bird need? You know, how many key features does the procedure to have in order to perform? And we've come forward with the proposal of what we see as the key features that it should have and the stay, the moratorium, which I would like to discuss more than time allows, is we consider that uh, as being one of those features. But that's the joy of the legislative discussions now, that, that we'll, we'll look through that in detail. Okay, thank you so much. We wish you all the luck for these discussions, and uh, we look forward to uh, that new regime being adopted. Uh, thank you all for coming, and especially to our panelists for giving us the, the insights. And, uh, <laughs>